So it's been, uh, I don't know, two months. I can't do calendar math. That was in August since we talked last, right? Yeah, about Zipkin. Yes, that's true. So and now bef- before we get to our uh, our meaty topic, how, what's been going on in those two months? What, what goes on in your life over two months? Oh, plenty. Uh, you can uh, do a final release of Spring Cloud Contract, for example, and <laughs> right. release a bazillion of different libraries. So, yeah, plenty of stuff can happen, mm. especially in, in in the Spring Cloud team. And and then and then we were just sort of jumping in here cold. But why don't you introduce yourself? Oh yeah. So my name is Martin Joystak. I'm working for the Spring Cloud team, uh, focusing mostly on Spring Cloud Sleuth, so distributed tracing, uh, Spring Cloud Contracts, the the new kid in the block, uh, and also I do quite a, a lot of automation. So uh, play around with Concourse and uh, Jenkins build pipelines, stuff like that. So right. yeah, I'm a t- testing freak, automation freak. It all maps to the projects that I work on. And, yeah, and and then, and then uh, I forget if we went over this last time, but we, we you got uh, you got hired from industry, as it were. So you you you're uh, you haven't always worked for a vendor. You have you have experience actually trying to do stuff, not just sell stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so basically, I um, in, in at least one of the companies I worked for, I was doing the inside IT, so to say, right? So we were building business applications for ourselves, which is also good because. You know, you care, so you don't have to, like, tell some project manager that, hey, you should also pay for the test that we're going to write, because everybody right. cares for the software. So that, that was interesting. Yeah. Now, now you, you gave a, uh, this, this talk we were talking about, like, yesterday? When was it? It's sometime very recently, right? Yeah, so um, uh, yesterday there was the uh, Juktoberfest conference here in in Poland, in my hometown, hometown of Łódź, uh, where also Dave Sire was uh, talking. So yeah, yesterday I was talking as well as about sprinkler contract, and actually, I think it was pretty nice. Yeah. Well, well, let's 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 get right into it. I, so what is? I was happy. <laughs> yeah. So what 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 is the idea of of like contracts and consumer driven contracts in a services world and all that? Like what uh, other than defining it? Like what are the what are the issues that create the the need for it? Like, uh, whereupon did it come come from? Yeah, that, that's that's a very good start to to any discussion about a new approach, new tool. Actually, speaking of the new stuff here, the consumer driven contracts uh, is a is a technique or like an approach that is almost I think ten years old, so it's not that new. So it's a good good thing to start with asking a question like what problems are we trying to solve? So when uh, I was working uh, in one of the companies, um, the problem that we had was that when you have a communication between services, let's not even talk, call them microservices, just applications. Uh, the problem that we had were the integration tests. So what are those integration tests? Because many people use different definition of those tests. So for us, these were the tests that were run during the building of the app, where you were doing real calls to an AA, like via HTTP, or you had an in-memory database. So it was more than a unit, right? There was some integration between uh, some, some, some protocols. So the problem that we had 
where the integration test between services. Because when you're writing a test, at some point you will like reach a moment where you want to send a request, right? So what's the idea of testing? You, you want to be like increase the uh, confidence that your um, your software works. So how can you like test this stuff when when two applications are talking to each other? I mean. One of the possibilities is to have the real application set up like next to, 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 to the one that you're testing. But, you know, it takes a lot of time. It takes um, some knowledge to set up the infrastructure. So it's out of the question, especially during the build time. So let's not even talk about this. This, is, this makes more sense when you're doing some end-to-end tests, right? So what you can do is to stub the other service, right? So we're doing some sort of a, um, a mock where you say that, you know, when I'm going to shoot you with a request like this, then this is the response that I would expect. And we did that. But the problem was that the moment we wrote the stub of the service that we are calling, it was outdated. Because, you know, the other team was working on some features or stuff like that. So this was the first problem. How can we ensure that the stub that we're using is valid. The other problem was that uh, there were a bunch of services talking to a monolithic app. And every team did the same work of stubbing the monolith. So I was really annoyed that we're wasting <laughs> right. time. I mean, everybody did the same work. Uh, and like the problem is that everybody did the same work. We wasted time on this. And it was even worse that every stub that we wrote in each of those teams was outdated the moment it was written because the monolith changed, like changes over time. So, so that was one of the problems, like the, the second uh, thing that we wanted to uh, fix. And the third one, like uh, that is related to, to this approach, like typically the consumer-driven uh, contract approach, is the creation of the API. Uh, because what often happens is that you take a look at the API of a, of a service that you have to integrate with, and you say, it's useless. I mean, how can you even create such an API, right? You as a consumer, uh, even the name suggests that the consumer will consume, right? So, so he will call the API. Uh, so his voice should be heard. So what consumer-driven contracts gives you is the approach to create better API that suits the needs of the consumer because uh, it's the consumer that uh, will make the calls. Of course, it's not like the consumer can expect everything and the producer should do it. There has to be some sort of a collab- uh, co- collaboration between the two. But uh, the result of this should be a nice API that is, uh, let's say, helping uh, both sides to deliver business features faster. Mm. That makes you know. There, there's there's two things. One, when I was uh, when I was reading the, uh, the the Spring Cloud documentation of this stuff the other day, yesterday, I guess, uh, I was thinking. I wonder how much of like our understanding of how to do software in like let's say the past fifteen years has been driven by making testing easier, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like sure. the 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 whole idea of like not the whole idea, but. One of the problems, as you described, that, that you have with with integration testing. Well, first of all, like you got to have integration testing nowadays, which is uh, more so than testing some individual piece of code. You've got to test when you put the whole thing together. 
the whole application together and the defendant services, making sure it works well. And there's, I was rereading a good, uh, a good, not defense, but reason for this by the, what's the guy's name? Gary Groover, the guy who wrote one of my favorite, uh, I don't know, uh, digital transformation, if that's a phrase books, like leading the transformation. And and he was basically pointing out like, unless you're like integrating your, your, your code work, like what are you even doing? You can't, you can't move fast enough basically as far as getting the software out. Anyhow, it's, as you point out, it's really difficult to like integrate stuff when stuff is moving around. And so you start thinking about, well, how could I write my code so it was more easy to test? And, and, you know, obviously that doesn't drive everything architecturally, but uh, it's got to be like at least 15 or 20% of like how people design their code nowadays and how they write it so that it can be easily tested. Yeah, precisely. I mean, what was the idea of TDD? Uh, it's, it's to make mistakes. So you sit down, you write a test, thing doesn't work. So then you start writing the, the, the code. You tweak around, right? You change it until you're satisfied. Like red, green, refactor, that's the very idea. So you can do the same at the layer of architecture. So why not play around with the API until you're satisfied as a consumer? And that's what you can achieve with uh, tools like Spring Cloud Contract. And and, that, and then and then so the second thing I wanted to ask before before you you go down a rat hole of wonderful explanation is <laughs> so so like what would you what are things you'd contrast this approach with right like if you were to put a knot in front of you know consumer driven contracts like w- what are the alternatives that someone would do uh, the alternatives to to the approach right yeah yeah so basically I mean what typically happens at companies is that like the producers of the API are just saying how things should be done. So this is where, mm. like the typical uh, world. So you have teams, they have their sprints, they have their project managers, owners, whatever. So when it, you know, it can, uh, there's a feature to be written and one of, the, one of the teams says, hey, but the other team has to change their API. So, you know, things start to go crazy that the product owner of one team has to talk to the product owner of the other. Can you please put that into the sprint because you're missing a feature? But they say they have more important things to be done. So the, the change will take place in 15 months and then you run out of business. So it can't, can't go like that, right? So this is also, this consumer joint contract approach is also an approach to do this sort of a... Um, faster and better uh let's say having a better feedback cycle or even faster uh, feature delivery of course there are some gigantic companies like i don't know facebook or twitter that will not like ask every, like every single consumer if they're happy with their api right <laughs> you can do this until a certain uh, amount of people that you know a certain amount of consumers um that you can talk to them and you know you, you can um, they they can drive the change of their API uh, of the API of the producer. Uh, if you have, if you have many consumers, it's impossible because you would do you would do nothing else but talk and you know right. uh, and uh, adjust the API. But to some extent, that's possible. On the other hand, what uh, uh, when you have that many consumers, what you can do at least is you know publish some version of your API in terms of the stubs. So that services that integrate with you can uh, can profit from that because they have a single source of truth. So, so may, maybe one way of putting like uh, the alternative way, the the other way that people go about this is, you know, you've you've got some application and it has a bunch of services, 
different components, if you will, different services that uh, different teams make. And in these teams, they'll specify the the API or how the service is used. And in a more traditional approach, uh, basically that team has probably not not to make it too much of a straw man. They don't have complete control over it. Like they need to like talk with other people and see if it works out. But the issue is that if you want to modify that API, which is to say either take something away or add something new, you essentially uh, have to, you're at risk of breaking the consumers, the people using that API. And traditionally what you would do is like, as you kind of outline two things or or would occur. One, uh, you just tell everyone what the new API is and they have to go and update their code and go through that cycle. Or two, you just deploy it and stuff breaks and then each each team who has something that breaks has to stop what they're doing and fix fix the thing that's, that's broken. That's true. That's true. So uh, the idea is that you get immediate feedback. Um, so I <laughs> yes. mean, it's better to get it before it reaches production. But yeah. yeah, that's the idea. Um, another thing that comes to my mind are things like you know protobuf or avro, where basically this problem disappears to some extent because you have a schema, right? Mm. So. So that way you know exactly how the uh, its API looks like of the of the message that you're sending. Uh, and here we're talking about, uh, I guess we'll we'll be talking about uh, an approach that can be uh, used in terms of uh, REST calls or messaging as well. Yeah, and 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 so so in both of those cases, you're basically talking about slowing down the process, right? I mean, well, let me rephrase that. If you want to prevent errors from happening, <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. like you have to slow down the process that everyone's following, like delaying, you know, release schedules and all of this stuff, which, which is annoying, which uh, no one likes schedule elongation. I mean, more or less, but you know, the, but, but to, to get incredibly abstract so, so that we can then get specific, like th- this, this is an interesting example of how, uh, 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 the problem with computers, which is to say, they can only do exactly what you tell them to. Like, like in in uh, you know in any any human language, you have got lots of synonyms and intonations and meanings. So you could say something like three different ways and basically say the same thing. And you could even come up with a brand new way of saying something that no one had heard before, and they'll like kind of understand it. But like when it comes to like programming and computers, like you can't do that. It's like I know this one way to talk to an API. And if you change that, even by like one character, it's going to screw everything up. And so it, I have a good story here, but you're completely right. So in one of the companies that I was working there, you know, there is this uh, Boy Scout rule thing, right? So you go to the code, you see, a, like you do some stuff, a feature, but you see a small thing that could be fixed. So you should fix it like a Boy Scout. So the problem was that one of the developers saw a typo in the API. So a voice <laughs> right. fixed it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he fixed it, but he broke all of the collaboration with consumers because they had the typo in their on their side. Yeah. So yeah, that's precisely uh, what we don't want to have, or we want to break as fast as possible. So, for example, during the building of the app, so at the very beginning of the cycle. That's right. It's like it's like who machine learns the machine learners. That's that's the problem. So, 
So anyhow, so so then so we we've got this potential problem of like if you want to change your your uh, your your APIs or your service definitions or whatever, you're going to slow things down and break things, and that's that's where our hero enters the picture, right? It's like so, what do we do to solve that problem? And so, so like like you sent over like uh, it was way back from 2006, back in the WS Star days and everything. I you know there was a pretty good uh, description of of. Um, it's a lot easier to understand if if you have sort of like a I don't know a soap sort of background. Like when I was reading through this thing, like the 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 thing that made the most sense was what, what was it called? Like the principle of ignoring stuff, which was to say, if you're interfacing with an API and there's a bunch of stuff as a program you don't understand, just ignore it. <laughs> which that doesn't completely solve the problem, but it kind of gets to the theory of like, and therefore the producer of the API can muck around and, and they can at least add things. It still introduces yeah. a problem of changing existing stuff, but it's it's like halfway to this idea of being able to modify stuff. Precisely. So uh, what we're talking about are not schemas. Absolutely not. So maybe before we go on, let's define some common terms that everybody's on the same page. So to begin with, we have the communication of consumer and producer, right? So the producer is a service that exposes some API, right? Let's focus on HTTP here. So you have a controller, you have an app with a controller, that's a producer. So the consumer is the service that consumes that API of the producer. So if you're sending a call to somebody who has a controller, then you're the consumer of his API. Now a contract is an agreement between the producer and consumer on how this API should look like. Right, so that it's some sort of a written agreement, and I'm not talking about like Word or PowerPoint presentations where we agree on the API. It has to be something uh, that can be a base for our tests and stops. Right. And the consumer-driven contracts approach is an approach where the consumer drives the changes of the API of the producer. Right. So we have those four terms. Now you mentioned uh, the schema. So contracts are not schema. In Spring Cloud Contract, a contract is a, a Groovy file, Groovy DSL, uh, where you can define that for a particular request, for, for a particular response should be sent back. So it's not defining that this is the body of the request that uh, you might send, and this is the response that you might receive with all the possibilities. It's not the case. So... If uh, in the contract you say that, you know, in the body you will send a field foo, but in fact that body can have 500 different fields, I mean, you don't care. You care only about that particular field. So it's not a schema. It's sort of a, like a scenario, so to say. Uh, let's talk mm. about an example. Yesterday I was giving a talk where uh, the example was buying a beer. Uh, since... Uh, like we talked uh, uh, the last time, I, I told you, I told everybody actually, that there, uh, we have this application called the Brewery to test our sprinkler stuff. So of course, the sample applications for sprinkler contract had to be brewery uh, related. So let's say that we have a case where somebody asks us if they can buy a beer, right? So we don't have this knowledge to say if the age of the person is okay. So we have to ask a fraud service, so to say, or like uh, age check service. Is this person eligible for, for buying the beer? So 
I would assume having two contracts. One contract would be if a request comes in with a person having an age, I don't know, greater than 20, then the response will be, ah, you can't get the beer. And another contract will be if the age is greater than 20, oh, yeah, you can get the beer. So these are two possibilities. You can get the beer or not. Regardless of how many, let's say, fraud cases you would have. So if the person could be, let's say, declined of having the beer for 100 different reasons, I would assume most likely that there will be one contract. Why, why am I emphasizing that? Because contracts are not supposed to be a duplication of your implementation, right? Because that way you would have to write the feature twice. Once in the production code, right? And once in the contract. So a contract is some sort of an agreement of a subset of, of uh, features that you have. Um, and why do we need it? Because we need something that both sides can agree upon. So if we're writing a new feature, uh, most likely both the consumer and the producer have to write something. So often what happens is that the producer, let's say, starts a sprint earlier than the consumer, they've done done something, then the consumers are not happy with the API, so they have to change, uh, like the producer has to change some stuff again, then the consumer starts their, their work, and, and it's becoming hectic and it takes a lot of time. So the first thing that should be done is actually agree that, A, most likely, uh, this is the contract that the consumers would like to have. And, and you start talking. So the, the contract becomes a written, agreement between both sides. And what can Spring Cloud Contract do with that? On the producer side, it can do quite a few things. Uh, before we go into details, I told you about those two biggest problems. So stubs, uh, like reusability and validity, right? So how can we ensure that um, the stubs that the consumers will use are still okay? And here comes Spring Cloud Contract. So when the producer writes, uh, like gets the the contracts, like those 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 Groovy files, what happens is that the plugins that we have, either Maven or Gradle, converts those contracts into tests. What does it mean? So if in the contract you say, if you send the request at endpoint full, there's going to be a bar response. We're generating a test that actually sends a request and expects the bar as a response. So if you don't have such an endpoint, if you're lying in the contract, you will not be able to build yourself. So that's the, the key thing uh, that Sprinkler contract gives you, that the contract is valid only if you, your tests pass, if, you, if, if those uh, auto-generated tests pass. Right. And, uh, and, then, and then who, yeah. who uh, where do those tests come from? They are auto-generated. Uh, so, right, 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 right. Yeah, so if you write a, um, a couple of contracts using the DSL that we provide, uh, it's statically typed, so all the Groovy haters saying that Groovy is dynamic, uh, don't worry, everything is statically typed. So your IDE will help you with, with the DSL. So what happens is that for every single test, a single contract, a test will be generated on the producer side. That way we can ensure that, you, uh, that the contract tells the truth. Because the second thing that happens 
that the, the, the plugins that we wrote uh, do, is they convert the contracts into stubs. So that way, only after checking whether the producer says the truth in the contract, will you be able to create the uh, stubs that you can publish to Artifactory or Nexus. So that way, we are solving both the reusability and validity problem, right? So like to recap, contracts give you a written agreement, agreement between the consumer and the producer side, but it's only valid if it's telling the truth, right? So in order to verify if it's telling the truth, we are creating tests from the contracts. They are auto-generated, and once they pass, and all the build pass, we help the developers by creating a jar with the stubs inside that you can publish somewhere where other teams can reuse it. So they don't have to write like 10 times the same thing. Right. I hope I managed to explain it somehow. And, uh, and, and, and then so, so to uh, recap and re-explain on, on, uh, on my side, the consumer of what you're producing, so to speak, uh, basically the consumer and the producer get together and and they uh, as happens in in real life hence the contract metaphor is good and they basically agree on a contract right they're like here is here is the way we're going to talk with each other as consumer yeah. and producer and there's like like in your uh, in your beer buying thing i mean may, maybe it's actually different than this so so you should correct it if so but it's sort of like there is uh, there's someone something that has beer and something that wants beer a producer of beer and a consumer of it. And the consumer comes and, and, and one of the parts in the contract is requesting a beer. So there's like, I would like a beer. So somehow you put in the contract how to do that. And then uh, one would hope there's also a part in the contract that allows the producer to give the beer consumer a beer. So there's sending a beer, so to speak. But then as you added, there's another step that's basically like, uh, verification that that it's legal to uh, to to give you a beer under whatever geography you're in, and so there's I mean to grossly simplify it, there's basically three things that happen between a consumer and a producer, and so the contract you would establish is those three things, and and then like how does that what is that represented in? Is that like what if you were to open that up in a text editor? What is it? It's a groovy file. All so right. basically, and it looks uh, in, in a very simple way because you have, uh, uh, like I said, it's statically typed, so the ID helps you. And you say, like, there is a request part when you say, for that method, for that URL, for those headers, and such a body, I would like such a response that has such a status, such headers, and such a body. Right, so it, it's it's uh, it's not a schema, as I as I said, right. it's a, some sort of a scenario. So it gives you much more because from the consumer side, in terms of stubs, you're not interested in schemas. You're interested in a concrete scenario. Right, I'm sending the request. I want a beer, but uh, let's assume that I'm too old, so I should get a response that, hey, you're too old. You're not going to get it. Right. So, as a consumer, what what is of your interest? is a scenario. So those uh, contracts represent scenarios, basically. But there's a nice thing that you mentioned that you said that, uh, and I agree with that, that the consumer sits with the producer and they agree on the contract. But the problem is that it sounds really waterfall, right? Like we sit down and we assume that this is the contract that we, uh, we will want, which kind of is not the best way to go. 
so here comes the consumer-driven contracts. What does it mean? It means that the consumer can sit down, write some code on his uh, side, and let's say play around with the contract of the producer offline. What does it mean? Let's say that the producer hasn't written a single line of code in terms of verifying if the, the person can get the beer, right? But let's say nothing is there. The consumer can still play around with the contracts offline, completely not even talking to the producer, and he, the, the, the consumer team can generate stubs locally. So you no longer guess what kind of an API you will need. You can actually do it because you will locally create the stubs. So imagine this. It's like doing TDD. So you write a code and you have a service that you will call. So what, what are you doing? You're creating an interface or you're stubbing an interface. And you say, eh, I don't like what this interface does. So you change its behavior and then you change it again. You change it again until you're happy. And then, for example, you say to a friend that was working you and team, you know, I have a prototype of a of an interface. Can you please like uh, implement those this interface? And he does it, right? So you can do the same with the API, the contracts. So you sit down, you play with the API, and then you say, for example, okay, this is the API that would be awesome. Let's go and talk to the producer team if they accept it or not. Etc. You can do it, of course, iteratively. You don't have to like do it at once. But the best thing about this approach is that even though the other side hasn't written a single line of production code, you can still simulate that they have done it because you can work offline. So this is the like the consumer-driven thing that right. the consumer is driving the change, and you don't block. Like everything right now is reactive, so this <laughs> this process is also reactive, so to say, because uh, the consumer can work offline, he can work on the contract. Then both sides have to block, like on the agreeing on the contract, and then both sides can work in parallel because they agreed on the contract. So the consumer can like uh, finish up its work if if there's still some. Uh, like implementation to be done and the producer implements the the missing feature. Yeah, no, and and I think I think I think you're you're hitting on it. You, there must be some well. We're we're discussing the snappy phrase for it, but it's almost like a uh an inversion of control of how interfaces normally work, right? Like precisely, the, that's the, a very good uh, way to, to to present it. The 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 producers usually have all of the control over what it looks like and and you know, I mean, this is this, to exaggerate the point to make the point. Like when something breaks, it's not their fault. <laughs> whereas, yeah, whereas, like in a consumer-driven uh, approach, it's the the consumers are are. I mean, tell me this is true, but the consumers are defining what the interface looks like, and and in their in their defining it, like maybe it's not totally the producer's fault, like. And and someone can always maliciously go in and be dumb, right? And do something do something yeah. silly. But it, it's it's sort of like the the relationship that's that's put up here is it says consumers will come to you and tell you how they want to consume your service. And so it's it's as a producer, it's your job to make sure that you can talk to them in the way they want to, instead of instead of uh, basically demanding the way that uh, that the consumers interface with your APIs and stuff. 
Precisely. Uh, going further, uh, in sprinkler contract, you can, like, an important problem is ownership of contracts. Who should own it? Where should it be placed? Uh, I'm in favor of uh, actually the producer having the contracts, like inside its, uh, its repo. But uh, there is another approach, uh, because sometimes for security reasons, for example, the producer's code is hidden. You cannot even see it, like uh, you cannot access it. So there is another approach where all the contracts can lay in a single repo. Why would you even want that? For a very particular and nice reason. If uh, we are writing about this on the um, in the documentation, but if you let's say create this repo in a proper st like structure in terms of folders and stuff like that, as a producer. You're, you will know, for example, which consumers you broke with a change that you did locally. Mm, right. Why is it so? Because all of the consumers, uh, like to, to, put, uh, to put it briefly, there is a root folder for a producer. Like, uh, let's say, let's call him Foo, right? The Foo producer. So under the Foo folder, all the consumers will put their contracts. Like, this is the expectations that we want to have. So... When the producer will generate the tests from those uh, contracts, the producer will know exactly which contract from which consumer it was. So in that case, breaking changes are close to impossible, right? Because they would have to be introduced by the consumers. The consumer would have to say, I explicitly want you to break the contract, right? But if, like in that case, most often what companies do when they have the contracts in a single repo, is that there is a reviewing process. You cannot just merge the PR. There has to be some, you know, plus ones or okay, something like that. So somebody will have to check and say, hey, you're breaking the backwards compatibility. Mm. But the great thing about this approach is that the producer will know exactly uh, which, which consumer was broken. We, of course, we're talking about a very abstract thing. So I advise everybody to check out the sprinkler contract documentation where we provide an example and stuff like that. But uh, I hope that I've managed to explain that a little yeah, bit but, at least. But, 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 you know, and it, it's the what you're hitting on there is like the uh, it sounds simple is like the testing aspect of all of this. Right. So so like at the beginning, like the uh, when you and I are talking, one of the main problem is uh Testing large systems with lots of services in them is is difficult. It's tedious and takes a long time, for all sorts of reasons, right? And so one of the one of the things to make testing easier, if you're using a whole bunch of different services, is to basically uh, stub them out and and whether you want to call them like mock things or whatever, but essentially to use an, yet another word, you're simulating all these other services. So if you have some application that uses like fifty different services. Like uh, like your brewery thing, you know, there's another part of your brewery resource ERP application that I guess is like brewing the beer and trying to keep track of like this one's been brewing for five days, this one for eight. And then and then you would have another component that's like uh, we've committed to sell 50 kegs to this company. So we've got to make sure to allocate that and not sell 50 kegs to this other company. So you got all these different services and if you wanted to change like aspects of those, you would almost have to like deploy them to production to make sure everything integrated. Yeah, so, so that, that, that would be, you know, 
insanity, more or less. So instead, you have like simulations that run and stuff like that, or, you know, whatever you want to call them, ways of testing it to integrate it. So uh, I've almost forgotten what I was saying here, but hopefully I'll remember. Most likely about uh, feedback cycle. That's right. Uh, right. And, 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 then, and then so the, the issue, one of the things that you're solving here in an interesting way is like, so if I'm depending on those services and changes are made to the services, testing them is annoying and it's hard to test them in the first place. So when you when you use uh, when you use the spring contract stuff, the first thing it does is generate a bunch of stubs for you, so you can. It may not test the uh, I don't I don't know what you kids call it anymore nowadays, but it may not actually uh, test the behavior of the service thoroughly. But it Precisely. at least but it at least tests the uh, semantics. Of yeah, it, the, the, the semantics. I guess it tests that like the language is English, so to speak. Exactly. And exactly. and which which is which is a huge thing to test. So. You've got that on the consumer side, and, and and what's kind of intriguing about this approach, as you were just suggesting, is that so maybe what we should do is if on the producer side, uh, they should proactively know when they're about to break some use, user of their code. So the, 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 the users of their service will basically send them, or it'll be auto-generated, but they will have a test suite, more or less, that that simulates what all of the users of the service will be doing. So when when the producer of the API makes changes, they can test if they're going to break things before it, uh, I don't know, is checked in, so to speak, or before it reaches all of the various consumers of things, which... Yeah, so you're right. And actually with Sprinkler contract, but depending on where you have the... Uh, who is owning the contracts, you'll have it in two different ways. If the producer is owning the contracts, and the producer, for example, is doing the backwards incompatible change, the next time any consumer will be built, for example, you can put on your CI like cron for, I don't know, every 15 minutes or something like that, the build will break because sprinkler contract uh, uh, on the consumer side will download the latest stubs that are right now backwards incompatible, and your integration tests will reuse those backwards incompatible uh, stubs and they and it will blow up right and if the ownership is in the common repo uh, actually if you if you let's say merge the request for a backwards incompatible change of the API the producers tests will be broken because why, why is it so let's say that you have changed a URL from foo to bar right it's a backwards like incompatible change because you deleted the foo and you added a bar. And suddenly, auto-generated tests are run and they are shooting at the bar endpoint, which doesn't exist. So the producer code will blow up. As simple as that. Yeah, now that makes sense. And it's another good example of like how the uh, the onus for combat- compatibility is placed on the producer. <laughs> which... Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Because... These are producer stubs. So we have to check if the contract is telling the truth against that producer. Mm. Right, right, right. And and so and so may, maybe to uh maybe to, to to get close to wrapping up a little bit. So how like all of the uh, mo- we we mentioned Groovy, which is an actual technology that you can, you know, use a keyboard to do something with. But most everything we've talked about is sort of like theory and hand waviness. So, like, what does this what does this end up looking like in in Spring Cloud? Like, how does how do, how do, what's the, what do the tools actually look like? Okay, so that's a very good question. So, on the producer side, you um, create the 
the con or not on, not necessarily on the producer side, but let's skip. Uh, the, let's say let's stay with this example. You create the uh, groovy based um, contracts. Uh, you're using the Spring Cloud contract uh, like jar, like the contents of the jar, right? Uh, mm -hmm. To to do it. Uh, you add a Maven or Gradle plugin that uh, allows you to change the contract into the tests or change the contracts into a stub. Uh, so that's on the producer side. On the consumer side, you are using Spring Cloud Contract Stub Runner, which has quite a good name because it's running stubs. So basically, when you add it in your integration tests, you can provide an annotation, how to configure Stub Runner, where you provide the group ID, artifact ID, and a bunch of other stuff of stubs that you want to be downloaded. So automatically, when you run your tests, we are checking the, the nexus that, or artifactory that you have provided the URL to. We are searching for the stubs that you have provided uh, like in, in, the, in the properties of the test. We're downloading those stubs. We're starting fake HTTP servers, and we're feeding those servers with stubs. So basically, you don't have to do anything to start in-memory HTTP servers uh, to, uh, in your tests as a consumer. Uh, another thing that we are doing is pretty much the same thing, but for messaging, because we didn't, we were focused on HTTP. So um, Sprinkle Contract gives you the very same approach with messaging. So you create a contract in which you define a message. But for example, if something happens, like, I don't know, if, if a scheduler is uh, started, a message will be sent. So on the producer side, if you put that in the contract, we will execute that scheduler that you mentioned, and we will check if on that channel a message was sent. So if you're not doing that, we will find it out and your build will break. And on the consumer side, you can say, I will not go into details how, but it's just an interface, so it's really easy to trigger. You will can trigger the message because with HTTP, it's simple because you're sending a request and you get the response, right? It's synchronous. But with messaging, you know, suddenly you get the message. So we give the tools to trigger that message. And what is awesome is that that message has been tested against the producer. So the producer is not lying. Uh, so basically, these are the, the, two, the two tools that uh, we support. Oh, and another thing is that on the consumer side, we also support, um, we integrate with Spring Cloud, basically, which makes sense because it's Spring Cloud contract. And we can stab out completely the service discovery. So if you're using, for example, console, and you're using Spring Cloud contract, in your integration test, we don't care that it's console because we're going to stab it out. It's going to be done completely in memory. So we're going to start an HTTP server in memory. And when you're going to request for that using, for example, Fane or you know, some sort of uh, discovery client, we will route it, the call, to that uh, fake HTTP server uh, that we have started. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really fast and you can completely stub out the discovery service. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So, so like, like how... Mm. how long does this kind of stuff take? Like, like what, are, what are the units of work? Like, uh, obviously, mm -hmm. they're sort of like defining a contract, right? That's, that's yeah, probably... So I can actually go through the whole flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so it's consumer-driven contract. So the consumer starts. So the consumer, 
by any means, regardless whether the contracts are in the single repo or the producer side, he, the, the consumer starts with a TDD. He writes a test, test for the feature that he, he wants to do. And he plays around with the contract that is there locally because he can work offline, play around with the contract until it suits uh, the needs of the consumer, right? Once the consumer is done, uh, like the communication with the producer takes part, uh, takes place that, you know, this is the contract that we want to have. So this is the first part. So the consumer plays around with the API until it's satisfied. Then the producer can take the PR with the, the contract and implement the missing feature. Once it's done, it's merged into, uh, like, uh, this branch is merged, this PR is merged into master, which means that the auto-generated tests passed and stubs of the producer are placed into Nexus or, like, Artifactory. And the last bit is that the consumer can switch off the flag of working offline to working online, which means that the stubs will be downloaded from this Nexus or Artifactory. That's it. So, so do, do, do people like, do people like fill out the stubs to mess with them or is it just like you never touch those because they're auto generated and you're just going to create a bunch of problems? You never touch the stubs, you touch the contract. Ah, right, right, right. Uh, Because the stubs, uh, as an implementation of the HTTP server stub, we're using Wiremock. Wiremock in terms of stubs uses JSON. Uh, if you ever need to do a JSON in a JSON, you want to, it's, it's misery and pain. You want to, like, cry. Right. Uh, try to escape all the signs properly. It's, it's really tedious. So we're doing that for the user. The user can use, uh, you know, Groovy's map notation to create a nice JSON or a G-string. So no escaping of, uh, you know, uh, quotes or stuff like that has to take place. So the consumer can play around with the DSL. There's another approach that Sprinkler Contract gives you if you if you don't like Groovy or DSLs. Uh, you can create the stub via the ResDocs. So as a producer, you're writing tests using Spring ResDocs, and you also say that, okay, this test passed, and by the way, can you please uh, create a stub from this? Uh, so here you don't have auto-generated tests because there's no contract, but you can still achieve the same goal of uh, creating a stub and the rest is the same so the stubs will be packaged and you can push them into nexus or something like that right so we give various options so so then then like uh what what where where do people get this stuff like is it is how long has it been out or like what's give give it give us some like project history and and stuff project history is really interesting um because sprinkler contract has a predecessor, which is called Accurist. So um, the Accurist project was started, if I remember correctly, two years ago, and it had two GAs. So it has already been battle-proven, and Sprinkle Contract has been released, let me check it, because I don't really remember, two weeks ago. So, uh, so GA of uh, the Sprinkle Contract is two weeks, but it's based on the foundations of a project that was that had its GA. Uh, I can actually even check that. But uh, some time ago, when it was battle proven, as I as I mentioned, and the release was uh, June the second was the second release, and the first one mm. was yeah. Let me find it. The first one was on the February twenty ninth. 
Right, right. Well, that sounds so. So, like, uh, uh, oh, what was I going to ask? Oh, I know. So, are you know, aside aside from Spring Cloud, are there other like frameworks or implementations out here? Like, what are other what are other frameworks people use for this yes, kind of stuff? Uh, another framework uh, there is is uh, is called Pact. Uh, mm. It's also a nice solution. Um, the difference is. The main difference is that Pact supports multiple languages, uh, so not not no, not only uh, JVM stuff. Uh, it has a different approach toward. It, it also has something called a uh, like a broker, where where all, let's say um, th- this broker can tell you uh, which service uses which contract and which version. Uh, you can check out their documentation to to to, to learn more. Uh, the main difference is uh, that they don't auto-generate tests, uh, and they don't have this stop runner feature, so the stops are automatically, uh, create, let's say, downloaded and started for your uh, tests. But uh, yeah, they they also favor this consumer-driven approach, and uh, um, and yeah, that's that's basically another tool that I know. Yeah, are there others? Maybe there. <laughs> well, well, uh, is 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 there anything else you want to uh, wangle in here before we wrap up, or do you think we we covered it sufficiently? So, like, uh, hopefully, we've managed to cover uh, why would you like to consider doing uh, consumer driven contracts. I hope that we have uh, emphasized what the problems we're trying to solve. So, basically, uh, stop validity and reusability. Uh, and uh, how you can create a much nicer API uh, using this uh, approach. I hope that we've shown how you can do that with Spring Cloud Contracts. Uh, it's difficult to talk about code instead of showing it, so uh, I encourage uh, everybody to check out the uh, Spring Cloud Contract uh, documentation. Also on my blog, toomuchcoding.com, I think I've written quite a few things uh, on this. So yeah, hopefully we've managed to shed light on uh, on a topic that is really old, so to say, uh, but often very neglected. So people re- redo their work and they have problems on some staging or test environments when they're doing end-to-end testing, whereas they can have the feedback cycle like pushed back. So they can already, during the build phase, see that the their code is not working, which is the very idea of testing, right? Mm. Yeah, and 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 I and I think to like monkey climb it up to like larger topics, right? Like it's uh, we we we've gone this long. I don't think you would ever use a word like this, but it's sort of like a way of doing governance in in your uh, your application. Like there, there's and and it's and and it's again, it's it's a uh, it's kind of a reversal of how people usually think of governance. It's almost uh, you know not quite, but it's it's decentralizing it. And and moving a lot of the the chance for governance and and governance is sort of useless unless there's a way of enforcing when something bad has happened, right? So it bring, it brings a lot of the enforcement of governance down to the 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 consumer level. That's the decentralizing part. And I think you know wh- whether or not like you're all like microservices happy or things like that, you're going to have services in 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 your applications. 
and uh, it's it's good to not just, as they say, cowboy it, but you want to have a, a fair amount of governance in the service for all the reasons that we went over. And also because, you know, the enterprise architects have to have something to do, right? Like, exactly. <laughs> and actually, speaking of it, I, I wanted to talk about this. Uh, uh-huh. Often often they want to know what's there. So actually using Sprinkler contract, mm. what, uh, what, we, uh, what we can easily do is to create ASCII doc documentation of the contracts that your apps has. And there's an issue for that already in Sprinkler contract. I created a spike, so it's actually trivial to achieve. So we can present in a nice format for all those business people, uh, like information about the API in a scenario way, because this is most likely what they are interested in. How does the service work? Uh, and since the contracts represent scenarios, uh, you, you can easily convert that into into a nice uh, documentation. Oh yeah, no, that's a good point. You can do it. It's a a, a uh, side effect is you can basically do uh, a, an inventory of all the stuff you have and who's using it, which is uh, which is always a uh, delightfully impossible problem to completely solve. But at least you can have some good swipes at it. And, exactly. and and especially, I mean, it it becomes even it becomes near impossible to solve if uh, if things are moving really quickly. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. It gives you a better handle on doing that. Well, great. Well, you know, you've already mentioned it, but why don't you, why don't you tell people where they can go to uh, to to catch up with you more and follow more stuff that you're doing? Yeah. So basically, uh, you can uh, go to my blog, to MuchCoding.com, where you will be able to find my Twitter handle. Uh, which is very difficult to spell. Uh, you can check out the Spring Cloud contract documentation uh, on cloud.spring.io. Uh, I'm there on Gitter, so you can check out the Spring Cloud contract Gitter channel. I try to be uh, really fast at solving uh, issues. Um, what else? I guess that's it. I mean, uh, you can you can check some of the presentations of mine. Uh, I haven't yet put in the documentation the video about Sprinkler Contract, but once there is one out there, I'm for sure going to put there. So hopefully it's going to also be more uh, like give more explanations than the documentation as such. But we try to the, to have the documentation be really practical. So there are some use cases like step by step approach to consumer driven contracts. So Hopefully, um, the documentation will be good enough for for starters. Indeed. Well, great. Well, well, thanks for uh, you know you actually suggested this topic. I think it was nice. So thanks for suggesting that. And as for for the audience, thanks for uh, listening into this. It's always good to have you. And this is as always has been pivotal conversations. You can find our stuff over at pivotal.io slash podcast or in our not-so-secret backend at soundcloud.com slash pivotal conversations. Also, if you're, uh, if you're feeling kind of sprightly or are insanely bored and want something to do, you should go over to iTunes and leave us a star rating or even write a review. That would be delightful. You know what you should do? when you write a review, is you should go write a review and first of all, talk about how awesome this podcast is and how everyone should listen to it. But at the end, you should put on sort of tips for what enterprise architects should do with their time in, in sort of a cloud native <laughs> world. Or or if you don't like that topic, just angle in a few lines on sort of uh, uh, either something that an enterprise architect has done that's awesome recently or a total boneheaded thing that an EA has done. And, uh, you know, I find that it's good to have a little uh, a little mission for, for a review write-up. Otherwise, you just talk about how awesome it is. But uh, 
that, that that's something that you can do uh, as homework. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Bye.